You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's Talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined by Oliver Camacho, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week, we go inside the huddle with Brianna Hunter. The American mezzo-soprano is an accomplished stage actress and a champion of new works, making her a stage director's dream and a perfect player for the first interview of 2024. Plus, in the two-minute drill, a Gilbert and Sullivan manuscript has been missing for over a century. If you know where it is, please return it to its rightful owner, me. <laughs> Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Spotify, click follow, Apple Podcasts, hit that plus sign. Send us a voice memo or even just email us your hot takes, mailbag at operaboxscore.com. You can even just record your thoughts using the You Got Something to Say tab on the website, operaboxscore.com. However you contribute, you're going to get that OBS beer coaster, OBS lapel pin, and the number one OBS fan, Foam Finger, just for sharing your own hot take. Great to have... Most of the crew here on the show this week, starting with Oliver Camacho. Not going to lie, I'm excited to be back, y'all, but it's like the first full week back to work, and it's Monday? It's just Monday? I know, I know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And Rafael Nadal is is out of the Australian. Oh, we're universe. talking about sports already. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Let's get right to it. It's just Monday, Oliver. It's just Monday. Uh, yeah, Rafael Nadal, after being off the tour for almost a full year, injured himself in his first tournament back. And so he probably will not participate in the Southern Hemisphere uh, hardcore season this year. Hope he'll be back in time for Clay. Womp womp. Weston Williams. Well, I'm in mourning, and I think, George, you know why. Oh. Uh, you did send me that text after, after it happened. So, you know, I just have to look sadly out the window, you know, with the gray skies rolling over the lake and a single tear drops out of my eye and I whisper one last time, oh God, no. roll tide. It was, it was <laughs> such a great game. It's true, Weston. I did text you. I said, I love you, man. And that was followed by a series of maize and blue hearts. <laughs> For some reason. It was a good game. It was a great game. Uh, obviously, really I'm disappointed, game. but it was yeah. a good game. Well, we'll come back to that momentarily. But first, Ashley Hardgrave. Well, the regular season in the NFL ended yesterday, which means today is Black Monday, where all of the less well-performing teams do a series of firings and layoffs. So, so far, <laughs> Atlanta Falcons have fired Arthur Smith, Washington Commanders have let go of Ron Rivera, the Jacksonville Jaguars have allegedly let go their whole defensive staff, Wink Martindale removed himself from the chat over at the New York Giants. <laughs> the Panthers have fired their GM, Scott Fitterer. But throwing professional football aside, right now the college football championship is happening. And right now at the half, Washington Huskies are trailing the Michigan Wolverines 17 to 10. How's your blood pressure, George? <laughs> Remember when the Cubs were in the World Series in 2016 and literally <laughs> yes. every fan in the stadium was miserable for approximately three hours? That's the same <laughs> thing. Nobody who supports either of these teams is having a good time right now. No one. <laughs> now, just to go back to the uh, Michigan-Alabama game on New Year's Day, there I was watching the game with my family, got up, ready to go. I throw on the TV, and guess what? This is the first thing I hear. The resilience of the Crimson Tide has defined its return to the playoff. Time is 
drawn here by dreams. Where else would y'all rather be? They could leave with the reality of a chance at a national championship. It's Norm. It's Norm, right? And so I wrote to him. I was like, dude, please tell me I'm nuts, but that you were introducing on national television. He's like, yep, that were me. Awesome. <laughs> he got the OBS bump. <laughs> he, he sure did. You know, we, we he's he's been put in the hours, you know, every single episode. He's standing just behind my shoulder waiting for every single bumper. Does them all live. He's such a yeah. pro. 2024. Yeah. Here we go. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. has been hailed by Opera News as a mesmerizing mezzo-soprano with a fiery theatrical presence and dynamic vocalism. This season finds her at the Met, singing in productions of Dead Man Walking and Fire Shut Up in My Bones. And she's currently in the much-talked-about new production of Carmen. Her debut solo album, Dispersed and Transcendental Chance, was released in November. Brianna joins us from New York City. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Pew, 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 pew. Rihanna, this is Oliver. And I want to talk to you so much about this, Carmen, because, you know, we're big Anita Rushville's really fans here. And, you know, I think the intention was that she was going to be the Carmen for this brand new production at the Met. And now it's Igor Akshmeti. Ak- oh, God. Akmetna. Ak- Akshmet- Thank you. Ak- yeah. And supposedly <laughs> she's like amazing. She's like I'm, the new I'm, thing. She's yeah, I'm gonna. She's yeah. really tremendous. Yeah. We'll all go see it in HD, but can you peel back the curtain a little bit for us and let us know how this whole process has been and how what it's like to rehearse like on Christmas? Did you rehearse oh, on Christmas? <laughs> no, no, we did have Christmas off. We had Christmas Eve and Christmas Day off. Oof. But then the next day, the 26th, we were back. <laughs> Rehearsing on Boxing Day? I'll never have on, that. <laughs> on Boxing Day. Exactly. It was wild. I think that was the first time I've ever had a production, like a full-blown production over Christmas. It's very intense. Uh, There's a lot happening. (laughs) And honestly, we started before Thanksgiving too. So all the holidays. (laughs) It's a lot. Yeah. It's a long rehearsal process. Yeah. It was a, it was a long process. Um, Oh, where to, where to start? You asked me so many delicious questions. I wish I I had. (laughs) <laughs> I wish I had like the deep administrative, like hot tea on, <laughs> you know, the casting stuff. I don't, you know, I read the article like you guys, and I'm like you also a huge fan of Anita and wish her, you know, uh, a, a full recovery and, you know, and all of that. Um, Cause man, what a voice. Uh, mm-hmm. And, but I have to say, I who I had not heard of, I was so in the dark about her. She's incredible. Not only is she an incredible performer and singer, but an incredible human. Like mm. we all got along. That I think that was the most pleasant surprise uh, was just how much we really genuinely got along uh, as castmates. Um, all of us, all the smugglers, the whole gang. Um, mm. 
And it's just been, you know, even in the challenges of the production, it's like, that's kind of the thing that got us through the challenges of the holidays, the challenges of, you know, illness and (laughs) chaos of holiday season. Um, It's just, it was really nice. She's such an, um, a lovely anchor, I think, to and and leading lady, even as as such a young person. She's only 27. And you would think she has this kind of deep, um, mature wisdom within her as much as well as playfulness and fun. So, yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, anything you can tell us about working with Carrie Cracknell? Yeah. Oh, my God. She's so lovely. I it's my biggest deepest flaw is just trying not to use a terrible British accent back to her when she speaks. <laughs> she has mm-hmm. a beautiful, lovely um, way of speaking, and I just want to imitate it all the time, <laughs> but I can't do it very well. Um, she's really lovely. Uh, she and uh, and the uh, assistant, excuse me, she and and the choreographer for this show um kind of tag teamed in a lot of ways um they they've been good friends for a long time and they really set such a beautiful tone uh for the show um at the top of rehearsing uh it was very free flowing you know very open to our ideas and our instincts um yeah she does come from a theater background so i think she was also getting a little bit of a trial by fire <laughs> working w- uh within opera um but I think, again, I come back to the cast being so wonderful because there could have been other people she had that were less flexible. You know, no one in the cast was a diva, Devo. Like they were all really like willing to kind of like play and find this new thing. Um, and I think she got really lucky <laughs> with uh, with the people that are are a part of it. Carrie Cracknell's, you know, theater background kind of makes me think of your own path into this art form that you essentially came to opera, not necessarily from music first, but from theater, right? You've worked with Tony and Academy Award-winning playwrights. You've performed at the Edinburgh Festival. You you have this accomplished stage uh, resume behind you. What is your first step when you're tackling the process, Brianna, and and coming from the straight theater, how might that affect the way that you work? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I don't know if it's any, I don't know how, how it differs too much from anyone else. I, you know, you'd have to, I think everyone is so singular <laughs> in how they come to this and how they learn best and what, what drives them. But I definitely think uh, for me, I have to know like every moment of intention within the show uh for my character i need to i ask a lot of questions like i'm that that singer who's like okay but why am i moving here <laughs> you know <laughs> like it's not enough for me to just to park and bark like i i, I want to know why something's happening um and, and how I, did that show itself in the recent process for carmen yeah um yeah, I mean, Carrie, as I said, was so open um, to, you know, she would say, uh, everyone, anyone listening who was part of it will know this, make me an offer. <laughs> she said, make an offer, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't, or, you know, let's, we'll find it. And so we could really play, like, I could just be like, okay, how about if I jump from here to here and do this? And this really feels natural. And this is really how I think they, you know, she feels about this, you know, the tarot cards or, you know, whatever it is. And she was just like, great, do it. <laughs> so it was, 
it was really nice to kind of be in that environment. Not that other directors are terribly, you know, inflexible. Some are, but it's really nice to have that kind of collaborative spirit, I think, in the room. And again, everyone is such a, everyone in the cast is a theater animal in their own way. So there was lots of fun improvs, <laughs> lots of fun offers that were made, you know, and she would, I would, you know, suggest something crazy and she'd be like, mm, no. Okay. So, oh, maybe that's lovely, but maybe not for this, you know, <laughs> she's so polite. Um, and I was like, cool, cool. I think it's honestly, my objective is always to get the note to do less. <laughs> Um, I love it when directors are like, uh, pull it back a little bit, because then I'm like, all right, all right, I've accomplished something. <laughs> that, that's how I am with handle ornaments. We're like, okay, with Oliver, early. <laughs> right. It might maybe a little, let the melody breathe, as she says. <laughs> okay. Oh, and I have a story about Carrie Cracknell, or more importantly, about Anne, the choreographer. Her wife, um, I met after the final dress rehearsal of Carmen. And so we're all at a bar afterwards, kind of celebrating that we pulled it off. And I see, she goes, oh, hi, Brianna, this is my family and this is my wife. And I was like, hi, hi, oh, wow, you look so familiar. And actually I sat there kind of with my drink really awkwardly, just staring at her, <laughs> just trying, you know, like wondering if I should even say anything. Cause I was like, this is super weird. Um, but finally I get the little liquid courage up to do it. And I say, I was like, excuse me, like, I have to ask, were you in Davidson, North Carolina in like 2000 and when did I? Oh, God, when was I there? 2000. I was there from like 2004 to 2008. I graduated. And she was like, yes, that's so why? Why do you ask? And I was like, well, I was a student there. And I when the Royal Shakespeare Company did a residency at Davidson College. Mm. That's how I ended up going to the Fringe Festival was like it was like a whole thing. So <laughs> I know. Right. So, and she like, we're just staring at each other and she's like, oh my God, oh my God. And so, yeah, that's how my theater background, like, meanwhile, everyone's just looking at us like, what? And I don't think anyone else really knew. Um, it's funny that you guys even brought that up because like, I don't think a lot of people know that about me, um, that I really was so deeply in the theater scene <clears throat> um, before I launched myself into opera. But yeah, I knew Anne's wife. So that was like the funny, She and I knew her probably before she even knew her wife. <laughs> <laughs> Which is that because it was like 20 years ago. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, your experience at the Met. So about three years ago, Peter Gell brings on Marsh Sells to be the head of DEI. They've, in, you know, done their best to implement this strategy. So you're someone who has sung Omar, you've sung Blue. Now you're doing things at the Met in terms of Dead Men Walking and Fire. How do you think they're doing? Is there is there anything else you would like to see out of the Met? Oh, Wow. I mean, there's always growth. Um, and Marsha will mm. tell herself, you know, we are on a journey. Like certain steps have been taken, but we are not fully there. <laughs> um, it's a, I say to a lot of people that the Met is a giant ship. You know, it's hard to turn a, a giant kind of juggernaut like that um, in yeah. a completely different direction. Yeah. I think taking they're being active and taking steps toward that, but there's a lot of dominoes that kind of have to fall in line um, versus a smaller regional house, you know, that maybe mm -hmm. run by, you know, a few people, you know, they can do kind of crazy out of the box things. Um, so this for the Met feels very like huge. 
you can tell yeah. everyone they're like, oh my God, we're, we have completely pivoted. It feels like, um, just the fact that they're doing more and more, so much more, um, contemporary work, first of all, is just amazing. Um, I think that's such a good start. Um, I definitely think, you know, there are things being done to discuss the culture of the industry. Um, and that I would say the industry at large, not just at the Met, because we know it's widespread, um, to tackle kind of the things, you know, the demons that we have within the industry. Um, I think Marsha is lovely. I've, I speak to her like, you know, not because she called me into her office, but I, she's very visible, uh, presence in the building. Um, and she makes it a point to kind of, you know, get to know people. And so I've, I've had many lovely, wonderful, um, interactions with her. Uh, yeah. How do I, what else to say? It's just really nice um, also getting like new blood because I think having more contemporary works also allows you to bring in people like me who've been doing them outside of the Met for so long, you know, who deserve to be heard on that stage too. So that's been really, really lovely um, to see like friends and colleagues and, and people I've just admired from afar getting the opportunity to do what they do so so amazingly well um on that stage uh who maybe you know maybe they weren't cast as Mimi and La, you know one of the many bohems or mm-hmm. you know maybe they weren't seen in a certain way for the traditional roles but man are they great at these you know so um I think it not only opens up um new works to their audiences but it introduces new artists to their audiences and to the and to the Met and that also kind of transforms you know the way things, uh, the ethos, I guess, around, around the Metropolitan Opera. Well, I feel like your brand is sort of being built on these new operas, but is there actually some standard core repertoire that you hope now that you're in the mix, you would get a chance to sing? Yeah, absolutely. I was actually just talking about this to some folks, you know, I think eventually I really do want to get into, uh, you know, this is like, I mean, I would love to do a Carmen one day mm-hmm. myself. I would love to do um, a Norma, like an Adalgisa. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love like Gluck. I actually really like Baroque music. I like Handel as well. Um, so I wouldn't mind doing like a Sesto or, um, you know, who knows, maybe, uh, uh, oh shoot. Ariodante? Uh, yeah, sure. Oh, I love Ariodante too. But no, I was thinking about Sesto's mother in, in Cesare. Oh, uh, uh, Cornelia. Yes, thank you. Hmm. The lower no, you're, you're too young to sing Cornelia. Don't <laughs> yeah, but one day, you know, and depending on where my voice goes, it, that could be in the mix. Yeah. Um, I think... A bunch of sad arias until you, dance, until you dance at that guy's grave at the end. But don't you love the sad stuff? <laughs> like, no, it's always so good. Like, yeah. I love listening to sad songs. Okay, Um Okay, yeah. you put it out. You put it out there into the exit. We're we're gonna speak it into existence. We're, yeah, we're manifesting yeah. it right now. Charlotte, um, Charlotte and Verter is a huge one for me. Mm, yes, ma'am. I that would be yes. Anything yes. like that's French and obscure. Also, I'm in. Like that is my that's my bag. Cool. <laughs> well, whichever I- of these stages you end up on, I'm gonna need you to steal some of these costumes from the Met production of Carmen because the blue jacket that you're wearing in the press shots, I live for it, and I need you to own it in real life. <laughs> Listen, I have tried to walk out with it. They- <laughs> <laughs> 
they actually built that one for me, which was really awesome. Um, it's amazing. Yeah, it's really cool, right? It's a cool jacket. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm, I want my wig. It's so good. <laughs> it, yes, yes. The wig is delightful. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about uh, Rhiannon Giddens and Michael Abels' Omar? Sure. Since you've been a part of that. And I feel like we have to talk about this show so people know that it's out there and that it gets produced and uh yeah you were cl- you know you're you're very close to the time of its creation so uh where Giddens and Abel's uh you know on site for your production yeah um i would say Rhiannon came in you know she's so busy she wasn't there the whole time um but both of them definitely made uh made appearances several times throughout um but it was, you know, she she actually one of the most uh, memorable days with her was she came in and did like a whole lesson on square dance. Mm-hmm. Um, so my character that I was singing, the, her name is Katie Ellen, and she's also the caller of the dance. Um, and it taught me so much. I really didn't understand the history, I think, of um, the role of square dance in black culture. I think you think a lot like a lot, most people, we jump to like rock and roll or rhythm and blues and things like that. But like square dance, which is like the most, you know, like in my brain Mm. and they're, they're dip, they're stepping on like one and and three. It's not Mm -hmm. even like, like, it took everything in my body to like, kind of like reorient myself Mm -hmm. to like where the strong beats were in it. Um, But it was created by, you know, the, the, um, the American slaves, you know, that's where it kind of like prospered. So that was so fascinating. She had all this like old archival footage and there was like a whole presentation. And then she did, she called a square dance and gave us some moves. And, you know, she's so deeply embedded in that culture, especially like in Appalachia. Um, and she, you know, she plays like the banjo and the fiddle. She plays all those things. And um, that's where a lot of her work is. So it was really nice to kind of engage with her on that level about what she's, you know, so passionate about and how it ends up in in the opera, which is really cool. Are you now a fan of the Carolina Chocolate Drops? <laughs> I I am, yes. <laughs> of course. Um, so before we started recording, you were telling us about um, the Artist Propulsion Lab, which is uh, something you do for WQXR. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it was tremendous opportunity, uh, something that was born out of the the beginning of the pandemic, uh, WQXR, the radio station wanted to give, you know, artists an opportunity to keep creating. Um, and it's kind of, it's a very symbiotic relationship in that, you know, they are giving us the opportunity to create and giving us, you know, financial, uh, means to do so, but also, um, you know, finding ways to, to tie in younger audiences to who may not even think about the classical radio station in New York, um, and to kind of like get new ideas about, you know, what people want to hear and what people are interested in. So it was this really um, lovely cohort of about five. I was the only singer, um, two violinists, uh, a, a cellist, um, a saxophonist. Uh, I, I just love saying it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, and every and and several of them were also composers themselves. So. Uh, I would say everyone was somewhat established, you know, like I, this always gets me like 
I'll see like, oh, a review, like emerging artist, Brianna Hunter. And I'm like, I have been here for so long, but okay. You know, <laughs> it's kind of that where like people who are, who um, I think are very well established, but may not be super well known, um, I guess is the sweet spot for, for describing the, the artists. Um, and everyone just had their own kind of like mission. And when I was, when I um, applied or someone recommended me, that's, I hadn't even heard about it someone uh, recommended me for it and they sent me an email and said, Hey, would you like to apply? Here are the parameters, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I thought about it and I was like, you know, I just really want to focus on black women, like in classical music. Like I just feel, you know, that's a voice that I just want to hear more of. Those are voices I want to hear more of and perspective. I want to hear more of. And so that was my, my little like interview video uh, interview. And I just said, hi, I'm Brianna and I care about black women. <laughs> period. And yes. they were like, come on. <laughs> and I said, all right. So, um, so that's kind of how that, that all started. And I got to collaborate with, um, Jasmine Barnes, composer, Jasmine Barnes, oh, the song cycle. Yeah, me too. Um, based off of the poems of another wonderful black poet, Rio Cortez, who I discovered in the New Yorker one day. Um, I just fell in love with her, her poems and I bought her book of poetry, Golden Axe. Uh, and then we selected three of them to set um, uh, to music. And the song cycle is called At Ease because I'm really, you know, I think one of the big things is I just want to see like, I don't want to see like traumatic, you know, portrayals anymore <laughs> for for us, you know, having done blue, as you said, you know, things like that, Omar, like there are a lot of, there's a lot of necessary, uh, you know, healing that needs to happen through these pieces. And we have to kind of mine through a lot of tough emotions and, um, and, uh, history, um, present history. Um, but I just kind of wanted to see what it was like if we just depicted like a black woman, just like carefree in New York city, completely at ease and not, you know, caring for no one but herself um, and enjoying her life. Yeah, I just, I I think if I, if I have a mission in life, at least at this point, it's like more, more of that, more portrayals of, of that. Um, in well, we, we chose to close with the word from your new album, uh, Dispersed and Transcendental Chants, music by Julian de la Chica. Yeah. Um, th does this relate in any way to this sort of, mission of your own here that you just laid out so beautifully? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, you know, I think I'm exercising a few demons in the album because, you know, we have 12 songs to, to mm -hmm. kind of go on a journey. Um, but yes, I think there's some of my poetry that's in there. Um, I think definitely it, for me, it was more about connecting the past with, um, with the present and the future. Like my aunt, uh, talking about my ancestors kind of history in coming to New York, um, immigrating. There's a song called my great grandfather and talk about, um, uh, I found his diary. Uh, we found his diary from like, you know, the 1930s and he wrote, you know, he started like on January 1st, you know, like a typical, you know, person like new year, new me. Um, <laughs> <Right>. wow. <laughs> and he, he had, he had immigrated from the Island of Montserrat and his like the first several entries are just like it's cold <laughs> it's very funny he's just like it's very cold and it's cold again um but then he kind of gets into he's like oh the germans have invaded poland like things that are looking great like it's he starts talking about like wow. her events and 
And then he gets really deeply philosophical and it's, you know, I'm so, uh, I love the phrase, you know, we are our ancestors' wildest dreams. You know, I love that each generation kind of picks up the baton and takes it further than the previous was allowed to go. And so, you know, he could only climb, he was also a violinist, like a concert violinist, but the only job he could get was like, you know, operating an elevator um, at the time. So it's like, you know, I like to connect those little dots um, of my life and my history, um, as well as like the African diaspora at large, um, because I think we are all kind of connected. And then it kind of coalesces into my life here in New York in the very end. Um, so, yeah, that's a it's like a like a super nutshell <laughs> uh, okay. version of a of a larger of a larger concept. Brianna, as we wrap things up with you on our opera sports talk radio show, the sad way to wrap up would be to talk about the collapse of your I don't want Philadelphia to Eagles. <laughs> oh, it's painful. Too. But you know what? It makes the when Instead. we ride, when we do fly, okay, it makes it that much sweeter. I do great. <laughs> when we won, when we won the Super Bowl, I was living in Detroit. Right. In what was it, 2018? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 17, 18, somewhere in there. Yeah. 17, yeah. like I was there for two years, so I can't remember which year, but <laughs> I like it was there was snow in the ground. I like ran out to the snow without my coat and just like ran around like an absolute lunatic. And I'm in a bar in Detroit and like no one else cares <laughs> that we won. <laughs> but I was so deeply excited that I just like launched that's myself funny. into the snow, um, screaming. So like it's that it's like, that's why we stick around. Okay. It's like, eventually it's going to pay off. <laughs> <laughs> Remind us where to listen and find, uh, the album dispersed in transcendental chance. Yeah. You can find it on Spotify and Apple music, uh, available on both of those platforms. And yeah. Rihanna, thanks so much for hanging out with us on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Carmen is live in HD Saturday, January 27th. Check your local listings to check that out. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. You're going to click follow on Apple Podcasts. You're going to hit the plus sign. Right now, we're going to talk through the two-minute drill. This just in. The two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land since, oh, December 18th. 
An article in the New York Times details Anita Rashvelishvili's vocal problems and how they've affected her professional and personal life. Loss of strength and changes in hormone level after giving birth to her son have left the mezzo struggling to recover. Rashvelishvili opened up about her struggles and suicidal thoughts and depression since the vocal change caused by the birth. The physical problems, the vocal problems are gone, she said. I'm just battling with myself and my head to make sure that when I go on stage soon, I will feel calm inside. The Portland Opera in Oregon has announced that it will sell its headquarters building, the Hampton Opera Center, in order to make ends meet. Since the company reopened its doors after the pandemic, ticket revenue has remained low, down by over 29% over the 2018-19 season. The sale will not affect the opera's current 60th season. Pretty Yende has been named Fashion Line Dior's newest ambassador. Yende, who will represent Maria Grazia Curie's collections, announced on social media that she is the first opera singer to be an ambassador for the brand. No word yet on how many free handbags we're going to get if we book her for OBS. Call me pretty. <laughs> a nightgown that Maria Callas wore in a 1955 production of Il Turco in Italia at La Scala has been rediscovered. Careful examination of the costume piece identified it as the same nightgown from a production of La Sonambula earlier that year, which also starred Callas. Oh, does this count as one of our hashtag Callas 100 facts? <laughs> I think it does because we don't have that segment today. <laughs> Roberto Alagna has issued a clarification following uh, his co-signing of a letter in support of Gerard Depardieu after the French actor was accused by 13 women of sexual assault and harassment. In a social media post, Alanya said, was I set up? I was contacted about a petition denouncing the media lynching of Depardieu. I agreed to support it without having read the written version. I've always been against all forms of violence and aggression. I also make a point of never passing judgment on my neighbors. I trust in justice, which alone must judge. <laughs> Very clear response there. Okay. George, your time is now. A call has gone out for people to check their shelves for a missing Gilbert and Sullivan opera. The original score of Utopia Limited was sold in 1915, but its current whereabouts are unknown. Music researcher Colin Jagger, who is tracking down all 13 original GNS scores, is convinced that it has survived, but told the BBC, we have no idea where it is now. It could be in a loft or it could be on a shelf. It's very thick, a bit bigger than A4, not quite as big as A3, and it's hardbound in leather and handwritten. Everybody, check your stash. <laughs> in trade news, Opera Kiel has named Gabriel Feltz as its next general music director, transferring from Dortmund Opera. Marilla's executive director, Jean Kellogg, is retiring this month. And Austrian mezzo Angelika Kirchschlager is leaving the opera stage stating that her current role in Sweeney Todd will be her last. Exit stage right. American conductor and administrator Robert Lyle has died. Early in his career, Lyle won the American Symphony Orchestra League's National Conducting Competition before going on to serve in leadership positions at Knoxville, Mississippi, Opera Grand Rapids, and New Orleans Opera, where he served as the general and artistic director for 23 seasons. German baritone Hans Helm has died at the age of 89. Helm performed at a number of German opera companies, but was primarily associated with the Vienna State Opera, performing there for over 25 years. At that uh, institution, he appeared 46 times as Figaro in Barber, 45 times as the Count in Marriage of Figaro, 30 times as Marcello in La Boheme, and 69 times as Faninal in Der Rosenkavalier. American mezzo-soprano and voice teacher Clara O'Brien has died at 62. She quickly established a reputation by winning the Sonderpreis des Badischen Staatstheaters, 
She had a successful career in Germany and was well known for appearances at the International Handel Festspiele, and she then taught at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, for 15 years. British-born impresario Richard Geddes has died at the age of 81. Geddes was known for his commitment to opening opera to new audiences, doing notable outreach at Santa Fe Opera, where he served as general director for eight years, and at Opera Theatre St. Louis, which he founded. He introduced American audiences to the likes of Kiri Takanawa and Edo DeVart, and jump-started the careers of American singers such as Thomas Hampson, Christine Brewer, and Frank Lopardo. And on this day, January 8th, Three first performances by Handel, his first opera... Take notes, George. <laughs> Almira in Hamburg, uh, a new version of Radamisto in 1720 in London, and in 1735, Ario Dante, also in London. 1735 was also the date of the first performance of Pergolesi's L'Olimpiada in Rome. In 1854, French soprano Adèle Isaac was born. She created the four heroines in Offenbach's Tales of Hoffman, and the role of Minka in Chabrier's Le Roi Malgré Lui. In 1887, uh, German baritone, bass baritone Benno Ziegler was born. He created the role of the husband in Von Heute auf Morgen, an opera by Schoenberg, which is, according to Weston, a bop. In 1896, <laughs> Czech composer Jaromir Weinberger was born. 1923, Giorgio Tozzi was born in Chicago. In 1923, as well, we had the first performance of a first broadcast of an opera direct from the BBC that was Mozart's The Magic Flute. Evelyn Lear, the soprano, was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1926. In 1937, American composer Robert Moran was born in Denver. American composer David Lang, Happy Birthday, was born in 1957. And in 1963, it was the first performance of the second version of Shostakovich's Lady Macbeth of Mitsensk. Not really an important on this day fact, but anything Shostakovich gets to be on OBS thanks to Weston. You're welcome, everybody. And that's your two-minute drill. Just a little bit of the first opera of Handel, Almira, that is the Continuo Aria Zanera, sung by, oh God, what's her name? Uh, Anne Monoyos, uh, from the recording uh, conducted by Andrew Lawrence King. Almira is a really good opera for a first opera for, um, you know, a composer who didn't really know how to write for voices Mm. yet. Yeah, uh, it's it's a really good show. So uh, I stand. And George knows it like the back of his hand. <laughs> yes, Al, exactly. Mira and I, we go way back. <laughs> yes. It's been a while since we've done a drill. I had a couple, you know, episodes off. 
some stuff to talk about, but we want to go first to some breaking news that we're picking up here as we're taping live. And it has nothing to do with Michigan getting an interception off of Washington to start the second half. (laughs) Ashley, please continue. Uh, So according to the Associated Press, they announced this uh, just a little bit ago, the estate of Lois Kirschenbaum. I don't know if you guys remember Lois Kirschenbaum. She was a fixture at the stage door at the Met for years and years and years. She collected a ton of autographs to the point that opera singers would like show up at her birthday parties. Mm. A couple of names that we want to mention. Some of them we might not. Uh, But she was the ultimate opera fan. Uh, and she passed away a couple of years ago, I think in like mid 2021. And it's just been announced that her estate is settling and they are donating $215,000 to the George and Nora London Foundation for singers at the mm. Met. So that's going to be announced officially and the award's going to be given uh, at the 52nd ceremony that's going to happen uh, on February the 16th. But that just came out today. So thank you, Lois, for investing in future singers. Always nice to have a, a breaking story uh, that is up to date, and then it'll be published two days later, and it'll be out of date again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, it was breaking today, okay? <laughs> so one of the stories that came out uh, right as we were taking our little Christmas break was this uh, Anita Rashvilashvili, uh, you know, very intimate article, public article that about a very intimate subject. Which is a subject that we've been talking about here on OBS for a couple of years now. Obviously, this story is very high profile because it's Anita. Uh, but yeah, she had some, she's, she is struggling. She continues to struggle with her body postpartum and her voice isn't the same. It sounds like she lost her high notes and she lost some stamina. She feels like it has to do with her hormones mm. and now it's making her depressed. And she had a rough performance in 2022 and she ended up like, you know, running out of the theater in tears. And uh, yeah, she was supposed to sing this Carmen, this, you know, brand new production of Carmen at the Met. Right. She was originally uh, planned for that new production built around her. And um, yeah, she's obviously not in it right now. So it's really tough. Um, and we are big fans of Anita Rashvili. Really, we just want the best for mm-hmm. her. Uh, I will say that there's more to the story. Um you know, there are some people uh, who have responded to the story saying, why wasn't a like a OBGYN or some kind of like healthcare professional interviewed for this article? Mm. Why? Why is it just about, you who know, cares? <laughs> a- woman on the panel, who cares? <laughs> Well, Ashley has given us the definitive answer for that. <laughs> no, I no, I'm I, I actually want to hear more about either your thoughts, Oliver, or or what you've heard from other folks. But before we do that, um, I just want to make note of the and I hate that this term is overused in so many of these like quote unquote embarrassing for female situations. Mm. The bravery mm. that yeah, absolutely. it took to be as public and forthcoming with her story and her experience because the voice is such a vulnerable thing to begin with. The ability to make life is also a pretty vulnerable topic. And when those things have somehow started to fight against each other, that's, that's, that's a really hard thing to deal with. And so I am, I am grateful to Anita. She's already shared so much of herself with us and with the world and with, with the music world in general, but for her to be able to, find the fire within to be public about this. I think it's really important. She didn't have to do this. She no. didn't have to talk 
more about this, but I'm grateful to her because this is, her story is, it's famous right now, but it's not unique when it comes to female singers that, that choose to have children. So I am, I am grateful to, to her and whoever convinced her that this should be something that is talked about. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I don't take anything away from Anita. Um, okay, I misspoke. Uh, it was a, uh, I guess an ENT or a laryngologist who wrote a response saying, one, I don't know Anita. I don't take care of her. I have no personal knowledge about her vocal, about her vocal health or her medical records. Um, but, and he also says, I think Anita's brave to speak about her journey. But he says, if you're going to write a piece about the industry, about programming, about socio, socio-cultural forces that shape a singer's trajectory, speak with singers, managers, and presarios. If you're going to write a piece about vocal injury and rehabilitation, about vocal cord surgery, about pelvic floor rehabilitation, speak with singers, doctors, speech language pathologists, voice coaches, physical therapists. We are out here doing the work. Some cases are harder than others, but an entire army of devoted professionals routinely help singers rebound from injury and setback. And there's a steady wave of in- incredible emerging voice science rising to meet the art of singing. It's actually not such a massive, impenetrable mystery, the voice. I am a laryngologist in a vocal metropolis blessed with many excellent laryngologists. I hope I'm saying that right. Jeez. And I personally know literally hundreds of singers who have recovered successfully and fully from vocal injury. They are often loath to share their stories because of BS articles like this one that purport to give singers a platform but which instead serve further to perpetuate stigma about injury and setback and therefore increase fear, anxiety, and isolation. An article genuinely in support of a singer does not feature a clickbaity headline such as this one, which implies an ignorant answer. We who love taking care of singers are rooting for Anita and for all singers, and we are here to help. Sensationalistic, poorly researched, and uninformed pieces like this do not, in fact, help. What a backhanded show of support that's all about him. <laughs> I'm just going to assume he's male. I'm, I, I, it does feel a little, a little, uh, um, not not necessarily a totally fair representation of the article. I, I I read it and came across, you know, much more. You know, I think you know, uh, it's a very evocative article, genuinely harrowing. It's not, it's not really as much about the physical problems with the voice as it is about the mental load of suffering that kind of injury or vocal change for an artist like this. Um, and you know, and the mental health is important too. And I think, you know, certainly, you know, getting some mental health professionals to, to be interviewed as well is fine. Uh, but you know, I, I think this article is well worth anyone's time. And if you disagree with me, let me know at opera box. What is it? What, what, what <laughs> mail at opera box? Or what, mail bag, nail bag, listener mail bag. <laughs> let me know, criticize me or Ashley or Oliver. That's always fun. But, uh, Check out the uh, article. You've you've t- tackled that article. I I don't need to chime on that. Something else that bothers me about the drill this week is Portland mm. Opera selling the the Hampton Opera Center. So, um, it is not an attractive building. It was previously owned by a TV station. Uh, but who in the world is going to purchase this? I I don't know. I mean, I guess. They've... Well, now's your time. Any up and coming opera companies, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Or TV stations. That's for that true. Matter. I guess. I guess so. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, when they bought it, uh, however many decades ago, I think they've had it for like maybe 15, 20 years. Yeah. Please don't quote me on that because I can't totally remember. But they bought it for like yeah. 
Okay, so 20 years, yeah. It was $5.7 million then. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be worth a chunk of change now. And Portland is a city that is, you know, experiencing a lot of renaissance and growth and development. So there might be a market for this. I think they might be making the right move. It just it makes the company now sort of itinerant. And obviously, lots of opera companies have been that. They can rent venues. But for a company kind of of that size, plus all the infrastructure, every, you know, Opera is so much more than just the stage that it's performed on, right? It is the costume shops. It's the rehearsal spaces. It's the storage. How you recreate that and make – it basically makes your production manager's life a complete nightmare to have to sort of assemble all that stuff. Fun fact, Portland has a streetcar, obviously. Who knew? Just one streetcar? Uh, I'm sure it's a series of streetcar lines. <laughs> Doesn't that just feel like such a, a Portlandia thing? It's like, oh, we don't yeah, have buses. Yeah. We have streetcars. <laughs> George, since you have uh, England as part of your identity, <laughs> uh, can you explain to us the difference between A4 and A3 for us Americans who don't yes. know paper sizes? A4 is like the sort of eight and a half by 11 size. Okay. Got and it. So A3 Got it is twice as big as A4. So A3 is the oh, more like, I guess we would say uh, ledger okay. size. So the lower the number, the bigger the piece of paper. Okay. And and have you ch- checked in your closet for this score? I have. Uh, you can tell us. It was it's a secret. In, we'll, nobody say it anything. It was not in the closet, but it was in the bathroom sitting up on the cistern. <laughs> okay. We found it thick. finally. It's where I do all my best work. <laughs> it's hardbound and it's thick. Um, just so... <laughs> Um, <laughs> we understand that 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 system of of numbering papers. There, it's like when you buy seafood by weight. If it's like U sixteen, oh, like it's shrimp. A bigger. Yeah, it's bigger. But if it's U thirty, it's small. Well, it's it's so it's backwards, just like dr- the way they drive in the streets over there. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know about you guys, but like, uh, I, is this just something that I do? But do you guys have like persistent fantasies of like finding a famous lost opera like somewhere like in a thrift shop and just bringing it back? Like I have I, I, I want to find the full score to the Monteverdi Lariana so badly. Like I, I at a thrift store in Chicago, at a thrift store in Chicago. I know it's out there. <laughs> I'm checking all the Goodwills. <laughs> I, I do not have that fantasy. No, oh, maybe it's just me then. I think it might just be you. Yeah, well, it's definitely just you. <laughs> I think you can have that fantasy if you are like in a library in Venice or something like that. But there well, we I will go. be in Venice later there this we go. year. So. Pro- probably not at the Barnes and Noble like, uh, <laughs> in Evanston. <laughs> 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 Let's wrap the show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Ah, the first one of 2024 is in the books, and it was an absolute doozy so great to have all these great faces and of course our guest brianna hunter as well good call bad call is how we're going to wrap things up we're going to start as always with oliver camacho so i'm going to start this year off i don't mean to like set the set a bad tone but it's going to be a bad call um you know a part of a plane like just popped off that alaskan airlines uh, boeing like while they were in the air luckily they weren't so high that everybody was sucked out of the plane uh, I am already afraid of flight of, of flying. Oh, right. I'm notoriously like yeah, anxious. Like okay. yeah, 
I used to wear those bracelets that have, it's like a, a, a sweatband. Oh, well, like there little... goes our Hawaii trip, Oliver. <laughs> anyway, um, now I'm going to be more freaked out. I'm going to like, be pushing on like the fuselage to see if anything is like Maybe, loose, maybe the, but... it, the lesson is to not push on the fuselage, Oliver. <laughs> okay. But just a little conspiracy theory here. Mm. There was nobody sitting in the row oh, where that piece Those of the cabin blew yeah. up. Jesus. Yeah. So why? Why was nobody sitting? I mean, I'm glad nobody was sitting there, but. How did that happen? Every flat I've been on has been completely Yeah, packed, the window's so. the best place to sit, too, so I, I don't get it. Weston Williams. Well, my, my I, I have a similar bad call because uh, that that news did drop when I finished paying off my, the tickets for my plane tickets for the honeymoon, so that was fun. Uh, I have a good call, though. Uh, I did not know that Nadia Boulanger wrote an opera called La Vie Morte. I can't do French, as we all know. Uh and the Dead Village, I believe it translates to, or something like that. Oliver can correct me later. Uh, it is actually receiving its American premiere uh, in April and is opening with Greek National Opera. It's, it's a co-production with Catapult Opera and Greek National Opera. It's opening at Greek National uh, this month. And then in April, it will be making its premiere at New York University's Skirball Center for the Performing Arts. And if I can make it, if I trust the planes enough, I really want to see it because I'm a huge fan of Lily Boulanger, which is the hipster way to uh, being a big fan of (laughs) Nadia Boulanger. So I'm very excited about that. It's like Solange. What? (laughs) (laughs) Ashley Hardgrave. Listen, I don't know if this is good or bad. I, it, I, it's just messy. 2024 is already, we're a weekend mm. and 2024 is messy. It's moving too fast. It's wearing me out. So Gypsy Rose Blanchard is out on parole. The Epstein <laughs> docs are dropping daily. What the heck, Stephen Hawking? Oh my God. Plane doors, which we've already covered. And then somebody please help me make sense of this Cat Williams interview with Shannon Sharp. I'm confused. I'm conflicted. And I have questions. So my call is 2024 needs to sleep slow down my friend you have questions you certainly will not get answers with this crew i can tell you that much (laughs) i also have a bad call gosh we are getting off to a dreadful start in 2024 (laughs) mine is some more audio as well check this out is former NFL tight end Rob Gronk Gronkowski singing the national anthem. And oh my Lord, like I know it's like got a big, really big, you know, range and you start too high and all that stuff. But dude, you tanked. Uh, I've always, I mean, I don't know anything about his personality. It's just, I've always liked looking He's at him. He's cute as a button, but oh my goodness, yeah. that was just dreadful. <laughs> hey, that is it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Hey, make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you, you get your podcasts. Get your voice heard and find links to stuff we've talked about at our website. It's operaboxscore.com. That's also where you can put your money where our mouths are. Start the year off right by giving back to the OBS using the support the team tab. Your announcer is, in fact, that guy, Norm Waddell. Your creative consultant <laughs> is, of course, Oliver Camacho. And yes, your audio editor is Weston Williams. For co-host Ashley Hardgrave and our guest, Brianna Hunter, 
I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you get Roberto Alagna to blindly sign an open letter. (laughs) (laughs) We're back with an all-new show next week when tenor Jack Swanson goes inside the huddle, plus you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more necessary healing. Join us.